Heavenly Father, I ask for your blessing on the teaching this morning. I ask, Father, that you'd be speaking in this room. I ask that the subject matter before us on the pages of Matthew would come alive by your Spirit, that we'd see ourselves appropriately in the text as you appoint, and I would ask, Father, that you'd convict our hearts in what we learn and give us a heart to obey. And Father, when it asks something of us that's difficult, perhaps more than we feel we can bear, I pray, Father, you'd also give us the courage and the strength to walk in faith with what we've learned, trusting that you will put it to good purpose in our life, knowing that that is your heart and your word, Father. And so now, Father, we enter into it in that confidence according to your spirit, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you were here for last week's teaching. I, I'm sure if many of you were, but if you weren't, I would suggest strongly that you go back and listen. Uh, based on what was in that teaching, there were some things that will lead us directly into things today. Now, having said that, you can certainly follow what we'll do today without that background, but I feel that the two work together in a way that I think is valuable to the body, and if you were here last week, you probably know what I'm referring to. There were some important principles we, we learned last week for how the church responds to um, issues of sin and discipline. Uh, in the discourse that we're currently part of in Matthew 18, we've reached the final part of this discourse in which Jesus is teaching his disciples on a matter of great importance. In fact, I'd say today is probably the most important topic in this chapter. And the next part that we enter into today is so frequently quoted out of context that I feel most people have probably misunderstood it. So as we walk through it today, we're gonna do some careful scholarship so that we can follow the thread of what Jesus is saying here. And that careful scholarship has to begin by remembering the context of the chapter. So everything in this chapter that Jesus teaches is part of a single connected conversation. It began, as you remember, with Jesus rebuking the 12 for having interfered with another disciple's efforts at serving him. Remember, the the 12 intervened out of pride, thinking that this man was doing something he shouldn't do. And in the process, they became stumbling blocks for that guy. And Jesus, when he heard of this, he responded in disgust, saying anyone who would stumble another brother in that way is in serious trouble. And that instead of what they did, he goes on to explain how the church is supposed to handle a wayward, wandering sheep. And he gave us that method on how we deal with that kind of a problem. And that method, as you remember, had three steps in it. We went through this last week. The first involved private, one-on-one counsel with the individual, followed by, if necessary, a private group meeting with that person. And then the second step, if necessary, graduated to a public discourse in front of the whole body. And then ultimately, if necessary, you might move to the third step of ostracizing that individual as a last resort. And you do all of that in love, in the hope that you might bring that person to repentance and ultimately to a restored place of fellowship. All right, that was the Matthew 18 discipline process that we studied last week. And then at the end of last week's teaching, in verse 18, Jesus told the apostles that as the church engages in this process, the leaders can know, they can have confidence that Christ is working through it. He said that in the process of carrying out those difficult decisions, the outcome will reflect the Lord's will. Whether the church binds, which as I told you meant convicts, or whether the church looses, or in other words, acquits the person, Jesus says the outcome is God-ordained. 
and he works behind the scenes. He manages the affairs of his church, and in matters of discipline, he does so to ensure that the process arrives at his desired outcome. Now, we pick up right there because Jesus moves forward in the conversation from that point, still on that same basic thought, and that's where we go next, verse 19. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, as I mentioned at the outset of this morning's teaching, these two verses, the ones I just read, are frequently misquoted out of context. And when they're taken out of their context, they're usually moved into a context of either fellowship or discussions of prayer, and in that context they get discussed, but those are not the correct contexts. You can see by where we've come and how we've reached this point, you can see what Jesus is talking about. You can see the context here. The context is that of church authority and discipline. Notice in verse 19, he says, again I say to you, which indicates that this thought he's about to express is connected to what he was previously talking about. Again, he says. You might say it this way. We would write it perhaps like this. Let me emphasize this point further. That's what he's saying. So in verse 19, you do not find yourself in some new thought. It is a continuation of what he has been talking about earlier, but with emphasis. And he says here that when two believers agree on earth about anything that they may ask, then it shall be done by my Father in heaven, he says. Now, how do I know he's still on the subject of discipline here? Well, beyond the fact that he said again, it's this reference to two. When he says here two believers agreeing on a matter, it points you back to the correction process in which he said that you must have two or more witnesses to confirm the issue of discipline. Back in the process of Matthew 18. That if it is not enough for one person to have a complaint against another person, that doesn't start anything. That, that's a private matter and it goes no further unless that one person can find two or more witnesses to confirm the matter. But once you have that two or more, you now enter into a judicial process, so to speak. You now have the makings of a disciplinary effort. And when Jesus here speaks about the two, he's pointing us back to that process. And likewise, look at verse 20. He says, where two or more are gathered in his name, he will be there in their midst, confirming that outcome, in other words. Once again, that reference to two or more points us back to the disciplinary process, so that when we work in the process that he gives the church for dealing with wandering sheep, we know Jesus is in that moment with us, he is in our midst, he says. Now that, friends, is a striking statement of God's sovereignty. When you think about it, he says he is overseeing the adjudication of church discipline through its leaders. He is promising, in effect, to move hearts, to direct decisions, to drive outcomes in such a way as to arrive at his purpose in the end. Now understand, he is not saying that it's going to always be done correctly. That's not what he's saying. I mean, look, he's, he's working through sinful human beings at all times because that's all he has. And if he works through sinful people, then it's always going to be a messy process. We, we get that, right? But he's saying despite that, you can be sure that in the end, he works all things to good for those he loves who are called according to his purpose. 
So in other words, we may not like the outcome of a particular process, especially, by the way, if you're the one under scrutiny, you may not like it at all. And in fact, you may not believe that the church's decision in some matter was correct or fair. And you know what? In some cases, it may be incorrect. It may be unjust. Nevertheless, Jesus is saying that all of those decisions will, in the end, reflect his authority and his purpose despite their flaws, working ultimately to the good that he has in mind. Remember last week when we looked at this process, I told you that sometimes the greatest good that comes out of it is when you are asked to submit to a decision that is inherently incorrect, and yet you submit to it nonetheless. Because, friends, the greatest spiritual strength you'll ever know is when you act in humility, under authority, though you were right and they were wrong. And if you want your best example of that, it was Jesus going to a cross when he didn't deserve to do it, right? So knowing that the process serves God's greater good is the reason why you submit to it. Not because you believe it's necessarily gonna do what's right, it's no different than our court system. Are you called to submit to the judgments of your courts only when you believe they're correct? That's not how it works. And it also means, I should add, that if you run away from church discipline, you disobey Christ. That is, Jesus is really serious about his church reaching out to help those who are not walking closely with him, and he expects us to participate in that process on both ends, okay? Now, before we go any further in this passage, I wanna take a moment to consider the other ways in which these two verses are often misinterpreted. Now, as you know, if you've been here very long at all, you know I don't normally do this. It's been my uh, practice as a Bible teacher to purposely not teach the wrong ways something can be interpreted because I don't want to confuse people. My approach is generally, let's teach what it says and forget all the nonsense. And I think that's typically correct. But in this case, particularly in the case of verses 19 and 20, there is so much poor interpretation out there on what these verses mean that I do feel in this case I need to address it with you so that you might understand how to deal with that false interpretation when you encounter it. So, Looking at the first of these in relationship to verse 19, that verse says, if two or more agree about something on earth, then it shall be done for them by the Father. And when this verse is taken out of its context, it is often used to support a name it, claim it heresy. That heresy says that in this case, Jesus is promising us that the Father will do anything we request of him so long as we have a group praying with us for that outcome. Now, obviously, that interpretation is not only wrong, it is completely nonsensical. In fact, it verges on being comical when you think about it for even a minute. By the way, I'm not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable if they happen to have fallen prey to this teaching. I'm hoping that your presence here today is God's way of freeing you from this nonsense. But it is nonsense to expect that we can control God, much less that he would delight to do our bidding or give us what we want, no matter how selfish or outlandish our requests may be. This teaching portrays the creator God as a genie in a bottle who responds to us rather than the other way around, which is the truth. Word, it also goes by the term word faith and word faith proponents manipulate scriptures like this one in a calculated way designed to appeal to your flesh because it's, it's, no, it's no wonder that 
this kind of false teaching finds an audience in our day and in our culture because we live in this age of materialism and instant gratification and so people naturally flock to anyone who would tell them God wants to give you what you want. Who doesn't want to hear that? The problem is it's destructive. Parents, just ask yourself this. Is it good parenting or bad parenting to give your child everything they want? If we know as parents that that's bad, why would our Father in Heaven do that? I mean, it's nonsensical to think that it works that way. And the craziest thing about this false teaching is just how easy it is to disprove it. You just have to try it. Just try it and see what happens. I mean, try asking another Christian to pray with you about something you want, and then let's just see what God does next. And, I mean, for example, ask him um, to let you win the lottery. Or ask him to cure some otherwise incurable birth defect. Or, I mean, for crying out loud, ask him to let the Dallas Cowboys win one meaningful football game ever. (laughs) Clearly, these things require miracles, right? And we know God can do things. He can do all things. But the real question is, will he do it? And the name it, claim it heresy will teach you that what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is an assurance that he always will. That God's will turns on what we say and do. But friends, both the Bible and our real world experience proves the exact opposite. God does only his will as he desires in all matters. And the Bible calls us as his followers to pray for what? Whose will be done? Ours? No, I mean, we know the Bible well enough to know we pray for his will to be done, not our will. Jesus himself makes that statement, not my will be done, but yours, when he prays about whether to go to the cross. Look, if Jesus has to acknowledge the Father's will over his own, who are we to sit around saying that if we ask for something hard enough and long enough, God is obligated to do it? What nonsense. Furthermore, If you do slip into, and we all have this tendency, if we ever slip into a selfish mindset when we're praying for things we want, that is when we consider only what we want and not think about what God wants, you will quickly discover that you are on the wrong path because what you want will not come to pass. And in the long run, as God works in that moment through your prayer life, your heart will turn to where his is. There's there's a great analogy that has often been used for how prayer works in which Our prayer life with God is compared to us sitting in a boat tied to a dock. And when you are in that boat and you pull on that rope, what moves? You or the dock? Well, God is the dock and you are in the boat. And prayer is that rope. When you pray, who moves? It's not God. It's us. So this teaching is self-evidently false, not only biblically also, but in our experience, And if you go to the the blab it and grab it guys and you say, you know, your teaching here doesn't make sense or it doesn't work, how do they defend their point of view under those circumstances? What do they usually say in response? You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith, they'll tell you, which is a distortion of yet another New Testament passage. And it is completely destructive. It is terrible. I've seen so many people who have been hurt by that I mean, it adds insult to injury, right? First, they teach you the wrong thing, and then when it doesn't work, because it's not going to work, then they turn around and blame you. You talk about a guilt trip on top of false teaching. It's horrendous. 
It's horrendous. God forgive the, those who, who propagate that nonsense. But even a young Bible student would know that when you break down what they're saying and you look at it against the text, it's not biblical theology. It's like Abbott and Costello logic. Or for those who are younger, it's like a, it's like a shell game in which they, they keep changing the answers so that you'll never notice the lie that's underneath. Look, friends, verse 19 does not promise you can claim anything you want from God so long as others are in agreement. It does not say God is obliged to give us what we want. That is not a true God. That is a genie. And by the way, genies don't save. And any God who would obey your will is no God at all. All right, so I hope I've successfully put aside any thought that that notion has biblical support. It doesn't. And then in verse 20, You'll often encounter, in this case, another misinterpretation. Here in verse 20, the misinterpretation that you see for this verse, it, it actually produces a bit of an opposite effect from the one that you see associated with verse 19. So if you take verse 20 out of context when it says two or more Christians are gathered in any circumstance and Jesus is in their midst, when you typically hear that taken out of context, it's quoted from a positive, encouraging point of view, typically, that is, when the church body assembles, Christ is with us, and yes, that's true. Obviously, when we gather, he is with us. But friends, what's wrong with that interpretation is what it implies. And when you read that verse, absent its context of church discipline, you could conclude that somehow Jesus is less with us when we're alone. Have you ever had that feeling or someone suggests that? That is completely wrong. That is completely wrong. He is always with you all the time, 100%. He has put his spirit in you, the Bible says, and when he says that, he means all of his spirit, 100%. You cannot divide the spirit. There is not portions of the spirit. You don't get 20% of him today and 15% of him tomorrow and 30% the next day. He's all spirit, which means you have all of him. There's no such thing as more of the spirit. There's only listening to him more, obeying him more, yielding to him more, but there is not more of him. So, If you are marooned on a desert island, you will have no less of Jesus on that island than you have right now here among your brothers and sisters in this room. So if we go to this verse, verse 20, and we teach that two or more uh, have to be present in order for Jesus to be in our midst, what you're inadvertently suggesting is that he kind of comes and goes, depending on your circumstances, right? Now again, I don't think we have malicious intent when we talk to this. It's not the same problem as the verse 19 heresy. I'm not putting these on equal level here, but what I am saying is it's still bad theology. It still leads to bad conclusions. To be clear, yes, Jesus delights to see his body gathered. We're supposed to gather. There's no doubt about that. But whether or not you are gathered does not limit how much of Jesus you can know or experience or have present with you. And that's an important thing to tell people as well so that they do not feel as though when they are alone in some set of circumstances that Jesus is somehow not with them in that situation. That's not helpful. So when you look at these two verses, 19 and 20, you have 19 being twisted to suggest that you can have more in your relationship with God than is actually true. And in verse 20, it's being twisted to imply you might have less than God provides. And what is the common denominator in both cases? That these verses have been taken out of context. You know, anytime you divorce a single verse or a small passage out of its context, you are on the road to misinterpretation because proper context is the key to understanding the Bible in the way it was intended. Think of context as like dots on a line driving you down a certain path 
Or the way I like to think of biblical context in interpretation of scripture is like those steel spheres that hang from wires in that pendulum swing we all see on people's desks, right? You know the thing I'm talking about? It's on the picture of your, of your bulletin. And so as that first ball falls and, and hits the next one, the force is transferred and the motion just continues down the line, right? But think about it this way. If you were to take one of those balls out of the middle, just hold it out for a second, what would happen? Well, now the motion isn't being transferred down the line. The whole thing would just stop at that point. And that's the way context works when you're interpreting the scripture. Every verse conveys a thought forward one step at a time down a line of continuous action. And if you just take one verse out of a passage and you try to study it in isolation, you've stopped the movement of an idea. And because you've lost the thread of that conversation, you're inevitably going to substitute your own idea for what the conversation was. And you're almost always gonna guess incorrectly when you do that. So in this passage, the conversation is on a process of discipline and restoration, and so verses 19 and 20 must be interpreted in that context and not some other. So anyway, speaking of the thread, let's go on. Where does he go next in this conversation? Well, he takes us to the next logical place. In fact, he takes us to the place you have to go if this whole process is gonna work at all. And this is the part I said would be the most important in the chapter, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. Well, we're stopping here for a moment. We'll come back into this and continue it, but I want to set the scene. Apparently, sometime after Jesus gave the initial teaching, maybe not very long, but some pause goes on, and then the, the apostles must begin pondering what he said, and it starts to come to their mind that there are some questions to this process, and Peter, thankfully Peter was there, he always has the wrong idea, and in this case, he gets up the courage to go to Jesus, and he asks him, hey, does this process have a reasonable limit? And in the case of a brother who sins repeatedly, you know, many times against me, how many times am I supposed to put up with that? Or, you know, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? And then Peter proposes a suggested answer. He says, seven times? Now, it's... It's not apparent in the text, but Peter actually did something here with selfish intent. He picked a limit that he knew would make him appear magnanimous by comparison with the Pharisee standards of the day. Because under Pharisaic teaching in that day, a Jew was only required to forgive an offense against somebody else three times. And after the third time that someone does the same thing to you, any subsequent offense that you could rightly withhold forgiveness for on the basis that they'd already done their duty to that person, and you know, you just can't put up with somebody forever. And because of that teaching, now think about how that affects your culture if that's the way people think about forgiveness. In the culture, first century Judaism culture, forgiveness had become a thing to be earned and to be deserved. And I should add, it was a privilege that could be easily lost. And so, under Pharisaic rule, any failure to follow the law would be followed by severe penalties that were applied without mercy, and any opportunities for forgiveness and restoration were very limited, and they usually came with significant restitution under the law. And so, here you have Peter, hearing what Jesus said concerning how the church deals with this problem, and and he goes up to Jesus and he says, well, you know, I'd like to propose a standard, how about seven times? And from his point of view, he's doubling and then some what the current standard was. So, you know, by comparison, he looks pretty generous, doesn't he? 
Once again, he and I assume the rest of the apostles had a completely wrong idea of how God works. They were trying to apply man's way of doing religion to God's way of running the church. And God's way of viewing mercy and forgiveness is very different than Peter's, thank God. And his question actually reveals some bad assumptions. For example, you can see by how he asked his question that Peter assumed that forgiveness is something that's handed out by people. That people assign forgiveness. You know, he assumes here that he gets to decide when enough is enough. You notice that? That's what Pharisees did. They decided that for Israel. And so Peter just assumes, hey, I guess this is how the church is gonna do it too, right? But here's the problem. If it actually worked that way, that is, if we get to control when someone deserves forgiveness, the problem with that is that mankind has a finite limit to the amount of forgiveness that we are willing to extend to another human being. Now, I know you may think you are pretty generous in forgiveness. You may even think that you're the kind of person that can forgive people forever. But let me tell you how it truly is. Your heart is desperately wicked, as is mine. And our pride eventually gets in the way. I dare say that if someone pushes any of us long enough and hard enough, forgiveness starts to become a fleeting concept, doesn't it? So in spite of our best intentions, eventually we succumb to anger or resentment or bitterness. Or you know what? We just get tired of doing it. And knowing that that's how it works instinctively, what it means is we tend to take care in how we hand out Our forgiveness, we conserve it, we ration it. We only allocate it when it's most deserved. In fact, we tend to only allocate it when it best suits our interest to do so. It's the way we think. And Peter, and I would argue the other apostles, having been taught this style of allocated forgiveness, they assume that if you were to grant people unlimited forgiveness, which is what Jesus has just outlined, well, that's just not wise, I mean, come on, if you just allow someone to say, I'm sorry, and then everything is forgiven, isn't that just gonna encourage more misbehavior in the long run? And isn't there a proper place for penance? You know, doesn't, don't we get like our pound of flesh from someone after they've done the wrong thing? Shouldn't the person have to satisfy us in some way before we just you know, hand out forgiveness like it grows on trees? We don't say those words. But we think like that. And that's why Peter was thinking that he was kind of being generous here when he offered to let seven get-out-of-jail-free cards be handed out to whoever happens to offend him. You know, he was pretty proud of himself for that. At some point, he says, or he implies, you know, you gotta make somebody pay. At some point, they're done. At some point, come on. And praise the Lord that that is not how God grants forgiveness in the body, nor to us individually, and that is not how he wants us to respond to one another. And now Jesus gives him the actual way it's gonna work, and I read verse 22 already, let me reread it, and then I'm gonna give you his explanation of it as well. We're gonna read to the end of the chapter. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. 
But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began choking him and saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he was owed. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Well, so there you have Peter proposing this so-called generous limit of seven times, and then Jesus responds saying, I didn't tell you that was the limit. In fact, I didn't set any limit. Make it 70 times seven, or the NIV says 77, but the point is the same. I mean, 70 times seven is 490. Uh, Look, Jesus was not saying that the limit is 490 any more than it was seven. The point is it's unlimited. He was exaggerating off of what Peter said to make a point that this is not how forgiveness works. God's requirement is limitless forgiveness. Not seven times, not 77 times, not 490 times, but every time. And believers who respond to our counsel and they repent of their sin must be forgiven every single time they sin because, friends, we do not own forgiveness. In the body of Christ, Forgiveness is not something we own, we don't control it, and we don't hand it out as we see fit. Forgiveness is exclusively offered by the Lord on his terms, and as Jesus said earlier, we merely represent him in this process of restoring lost sheep. We do not get to determine when someone deserves forgiveness. That choice belongs to Jesus alone. And Jesus has already given us his rules Every time someone comes to repentance after having sinned, we are to extend forgiveness to that person and restore them. They are restored in fellowship. They are welcomed back into the body. They do so without condition, without stigma, without limit. It comes with no strings attached, friends, because their sin was not against you, ultimately. It was against God. And since it's against him, he sets the standards for forgiveness. It's just that simple. Now, of course, I'm going to add this just for clarity's sake. You know, in the process of restoring someone who comes out of a moment of sin, the church might stipulate certain standards for future behavior according to biblical requirements. He may ask, you know, we may ask the person to respect certain boundaries in their life just to help them remain in obedience in the future. We may ask them to to make amends to someone that they've hurt in order to facilitate reconciliation. I mean, these are just helpful responses to sin. And in the worst case, we may have somebody who, because of their sin, has to be removed from a position of authority because they're disqualified according to other biblical passages that we have to obey. But look, in all of those cases, repentance is sufficient by itself to restore fellowship. Those other measures come after the forgiveness step, after the restoration step. They're not, they don't happen before. It's not as though they have to agree to all your terms and then you forgive them. You forgive them and then you apply the terms, if necessary. So we do not have the right to impose our own more restrictive standards of forgiveness on this process of restoration. And to keep putting it simply, no matter how many times someone makes the same mistake, if they respond in sincere repentance, we forgive them. Because friends, as a matter of practical impact, 
If you don't do that, there will never be unity in the body. In fact, you can't have a body if you don't do that. Because if repeating the same sin over and over again disqualifies us from forgiveness, who in here could qualify? Ask yourself this, how many of those of us in this room can say that you have managed to ever commit the same mistake twice? Who in here would like to raise their hand and say that's them? Yes, thank you. Liar. No, I'm saying, how many here could say, I've never done any sin more than once? Right? Who in here can say, you know, every time someone brings sin to my attention, I immediately repent and I never do that sin again? You know, I'd truly like to meet that person. I know I never will because they don't exist. Right? We all sin every day and, frankly, usually in the same ways over and over and over again. Ask your spouse. Right? Now, I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying who, I mean, it's so easy when we're looking at someone else's sin to live according to completely bizarre rules for their sake. And then when we look at ourselves, all the rules are different. The truth is, every time you make a mistake, you can have forgiveness if you repent. And the fact that it's the 491st time that you've done it just means you're human. And we're hopefully working on it. But the point is, that doesn't have a limit to forgiveness because if we had that limit, we'd all hit it. All of us would hit it. So look, when you have a moment of sin and you know it's something you have a habit of doing, what do you expect from those around you who know you and love you? Don't you expect them to forgive you? Aren't you hopeful for that? And yet at the same time, if someone else sins against you for the 50th time or whatever, aren't, are you going to turn to them and say, you know what, I've had it up to here. I'm not, I'm sorry, you've, just, you've, you've kind of worn out my welcome. I, I don't have any more forgiveness for you. What? Jesus says in the body of Christ, the only test for extending forgiveness is their repentance. And yes, in human nature, it is perfectly possible for someone to sin for the 491st time and yet still feel repentant at the end of it, just like they did the other 490 times. I can tell you what that feels like. It happens. So let's remember that forgiving someone else without condition on the basis of repentance is not just some magnanimous gesture on our part, it's our obligation to Christ, number one. Number two, it's not just good for them. Do you know it's good for you too? It's essential for you? Chuck Swindoll once said this. He said, every time an offense occurs, forgive. Every single time. And if you do not, you will never be happily married. You will never find a church that you're content with. You will never find a group that you can get along with, you'll never be able to work for any company. You're just gonna spend your entire existence looking for and expecting perfection and never finding it, and that is not a happy way to live, nor is it realistic. And I can't say it better than that. If you wanna do this for someone else's sake or you can't do this for someone else's sake, do it for your own sake. Never mind your Lord's command. All right, so he asks us to give this infinite, limitless opportunity for forgiveness to those who repent as a way of ensuring that the restoration process he just outlined for us actually works. Because if you take this ingredient out of that process, it can't work. Who's gonna repent? Who's gonna receive critique? Who's gonna receive counsel when they know there's no forgiveness waiting for them at the end of the line? We have to keep that option always open. And he gives us this wonderful parable at the end to explain why that is. God's standard and his expectation for us. And he opens in verse 23 by saying, for this reason, which is to say, let me tell you a story 
for why unconditional mercy is the standard in the church. And in the parable, you have a king who's settling a debt with his slave. And in in that day, a slave was really more of an indentured servant. don't, Don't think 19th century North American slavery here. It's a very different model in the time of Jesus. These people became slaves voluntarily. They indentured themselves to someone, usually because it was a preferable lifestyle to living in whatever circumstances they had. And maybe it was to pay off a debt uh, of some kind. But in any event, once they entered into this relationship, they were truly a slave. They gave up all their personal liberty in order to to receive something in return from the master. And even in that state of slavery, they could go into debt additionally with their master if necessary. The master might grant them an extension of of either provisions or materials or money to to support some need in the person's life. Maybe they needed to to add on to their home or something. And those loans had to be repaid through the work of the indentured servant to back to the master. So the the situation you have here is a king who has allowed a a particular slave to amass an unbelievably huge debt. He says he has 10,000 talents of debt. Now let me just put that in perspective for you. A talent is a measure of weight in Jesus' day. And it was equivalent to 75 pounds. So 10,000 talents of silver is a debt of 750,000 pounds of silver. And I did the math for you. That's $195 million today. Okay, it's a debt of $200 million, okay? Can you imagine the look on your spouse's face when they open the credit card bill and they see a balance of $200 million? I guess this time of year, some of you are saying, yeah, that's kind of how it works. But seriously, I mean, this is such an exaggerated sum, it's there to make a point, right? So the day comes for this king to demand repayment, but the debt is so high, I mean, there's no way this guy's ever gonna repay it. I mean, not even the Caesar of Rome could pay a $200 million debt. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses there for 10,000, in Greek, that's the word myriad. And the word myriad is the largest numeral in the Greek language. They don't have a word for any number bigger than that. And a talent, by the way, is also the largest unit of money in that day. It'd be like a $1,000 bill today, for example. It's the largest unit. So Jesus has chosen the largest Greek number and the largest unit of money and put them together. So his point here is it's, it's a, a level of debt beyond imagine. All right, now the king has no choice at this point. He's got to recover his debt somehow and he's not gonna get his money back on this bad loan. So he tells this man, look, I, I'm gonna have to sell you. I'm gonna sell your family. I'm gonna sell all of your possessions. And what that would have meant for the slave is separation from his family, uh, the loss of all that he had, obviously, and he'd end up in the hands of some new master who knew that he had a bad history, which means he's probably not gonna be treated very well by the new guy. So naturally, he pleads for mercy. And it's kind of incredible what he asked for. He asked for patience to pay it back. It's a ridiculous promise. Can you imagine a day laborer promising to repay you a $200 million debt? Would you even accept that guarantee? I mean, what, what person would give somebody that confidence when they've already squandered $200 million? Clearly, they don't know how to handle money. I mean, they're not gonna give you back that money. And yet he asked the king to consider his request. And the king not only considers it, he goes in one step further, he forgives the debt. He just says, never mind. Think about that, giving up $200 million. I mean, in the context of this parable, that's incredible. Now look, this king was no fool. He knew he wasn't gonna get his money back. So out of compassion, he just wipes the slate clean. And then as you see, the slave goes out and he has debtors. And so he goes to collect from them what he's owed. And despite having just given, received so much mercy himself, he shows no mercy. 
He finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii. Now, that's not insignificant, but it's far less. It's only about three months' salary in that day. So he begins to choke the guy, forcing him to repay. And that guy asks for patience also. And the guy says, nope. He says, I'm gonna throw you into jail and force you to stay there till you pay off the debt. He just ruthlessly treats this man, right? And then the news gets back to the king who hears that this ungrateful slave who's just been forgiven so much has no mercy for his brother. And as a result, he turns to anger, puts him in jail where torturers now work him off his debt, it says. And then at the end there, that very provocative statement that Jesus makes when he says that the king's response could be compared to the Father's view of us when we live with an unforgiving heart toward our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. All right, let's make the proper application here, beginning at the top here with the obvious. Jesus is the king, we are the slaves. Now, as obvious as that point may be, it is absolutely essential to understanding the whole message here. That is, unless and until you adopt an appreciation of your relationship to Christ in the area of forgiveness, you have no hope to deal with anybody else in this area properly. You can't possibly do it. You need to understand, you are under the authority of a king who has forgiven you in immeasurable debt. And the fact that that has happened obligates us to respond differently to those who are also under the king's authority who may owe us a debt as well. That relationship, that common relationship we have to a single king puts us in a different set of circumstances when it comes to this issue. And here's where it begins. First of all, you cannot possibly imagine how much sin debt Jesus has forgiven you because you have no idea how much sin you've committed. You have none. And I'm in the same boat. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying it's just you. I mean, you, you, we all like to agree we've done some bad things. I mean, everybody says, oh, I know I've done some bad things. Friend, you have no idea. You don't even know. Do you understand that the things you've thought you've done that were good were often sin? If you could possibly know all the sin of your life, even just to this point, if it could be revealed to you in its fullness, it would crush you. I don't think you'd get out of bed. You would just look at yourself in a way that would be so self-condemning. And of course, you don't want to do that, which is why Jesus doesn't show it to us, thankfully. I mean, it's been erased, wiped clean, separated as far as the east is from the west, covered over by the blood of Christ. Thank God, right? I mean, can you imagine what a $200 million debt would feel like if you had that to bear? Can you even imagine what $200 million looks like if you stacked it here in front of me? Feel free to try. I'd like to actually enjoy that moment with you. Well, friends, neither can you fathom how much sin is present in your life from birth and to death. In fact, you don't know the half of it. And if you understand that, that's where your appreciation of why unlimited forgiveness is the standard starts. And I may add this, maybe at the beginning of your walk with Jesus, at the very early stages of your relationship with him, you may have come to Jesus a little bit like this slave came to the king, that is, bargaining over your debt. You know, you, re- you recognize from Scripture or from elsewhere that you do have debt, that you do have this problem of sin. Someone has made that clear to you. The Spirit has convicted you. And you knew Jesus had the answer. And even as you came to him for forgiveness, you may have thought that you needed to bargain a little bit in addressing what you bring to this problem. You know, this, this idea that you have to make promises to Jesus, to live a better life. Uh, I'll make good on my past offenses. I'll pay you back, so to speak. Maybe for you that meant, you know, I'll go to church or... Uh, I'll give money to the church or I'll, I'll, I'll pray more. You know, you, you don't feel maybe in the same way that the slave did about repayment, but you're thinking to yourself, there's something I've got to do to even the scales with Jesus a little bit. 
Here's the reality though, you owe so much more than you can possibly repay that Jesus could not have accepted your bargains even if you asked him to, because none of it would have been good enough. The only solution was he had to wipe out your debt, which is why he died for you. That's the only payment that was possible or acceptable to the Father. The Bible says he canceled your debt by his death on the cross. So you and I have this unimaginably high sin debt, Jesus just wipes it all away. And there was never any other way that it could happen. So before you can learn to give forgiveness to other people in this unconditional, unlimited way, you have to first learn to live every day with an appreciation for how much forgiveness you have already received from Jesus. At the moment your heart is hard, at the moment you get resentful, at the moment you're ready to turn to someone else and condemn them for their sin, do a 180 for a moment and stare back at that mountain of debt you got forgiven and then try the conversation again. You'll do it differently the second way if you do that. And as you approach another believer who is sinning against you, and you bring that perspective, when they confess and they repent, instead of seeing yourself in God's shoes, you'll see yourself in their shoes. And you'll want to give them the same response you received from Jesus. It's the way it works. Like the slave in the parable, you'll realize that whatever you feel that that person owes you pales in comparison to what you owe Jesus. And look, if Jesus can wipe your debt clean, you can do the same for them because who had the bigger problem, right? I mean, in relationship, how much sin has someone done against you versus how much have you done against Jesus, right? The perspective is just so out of whack. That's the 10,000 talents versus the 300 denarii or 100 denarii. All right, now I'm gonna address one other thought here because I know this is on somebody's mind. You may be tempted to think, okay, look, at some point you still have to set standards for forgiveness just as a form of accountability, don't you? This is kind of the parent mindset. You know, if you just forgive someone unconditionally without any other kind of of ramification, isn't it giving someone the incentive to just keep sinning? Oh, Christian, be careful the standards you apply for woe should God ever use that standard against you. I mean, think about it. You want Jesus to approach your sin debt in that way? Do you want Jesus to withhold his forgiveness waiting to see if you straighten up first? not wanting to encourage any more of that bad behavior? I mean, friends, we're not talking here about corrective action. Yes, there's always a place, I think, in our relationships to suggest better ways of working and suggest you know, boundaries and all the rest. That's fine, that's fine. We're not talking about not being able to say that someone's life could change. We're saying that that's not a precondition to forgiveness. You don't put all those steps in front of forgiveness and say, once you've satisfied me in all of these changes, okay, then I can finally give you my forgiveness. If Jesus did that, we're all in hell. That's not love. It's not God's heart. So if we are hard-hearted against our brothers and sisters in their moments of weakness, and when they come in repentance, Jesus says, the Father will do the same for us. Now, let me help you understand what he's saying there because to understand what he means, you have to remember that when you look at a parable, you have to translate every aspect of it into something literal. You don't just jump from the parable to the literal, taking it as it says it. For example, in the case of the parable, what was the debt? Money. In the case of the literal, what is the debt? Sin. So I had to translate money to sin, right? Similarly here, in the parable, you have the slave being told that as a result of his hard heart, he's gonna be thrown into jail. That was the penalty of the parable. What is the equivalent? What is the translation for us? What will the father do to us? Well, clearly, Jesus is saying the father will hold us accountable, just like the slave was held accountable, but the key is Jesus is saying God is gonna do different things to us. His way of holding a believer accountable is not to throw us in prison and torture us. Clearly, 
much less send us to hell, as some might try to claim. What Jesus is saying here is that the bad consequences we will see are the ones appropriate to the believer. What may they be? Well, let me suggest to you that there's possibilities both here and now and in eternity. First, any believer who lives in bitterness, forever withholding uh, forgiveness and holding other sins against them and mercilessly demanding restitution and all the rest, well, that person is taking a personal risk because you're testing the patience of God. And although you remain saved by your faith, yes, that doesn't mean you won't experience some repercussions. And in this life, what it may mean is that the Lord allows you to experience the consequences of your own sin rather than putting those consequences away when he could have done so. So that you might feel a little bit of pressure on yourself to recognize that forgiveness is nice. It's nice when it happens. It's something we want. I've seen that too, right? I've seen that where believers have had to experience negative things, I believe, as a result of their sin because God wanted them to understand something in the process. That's always a potential uh, response of God to us having hard hearts. And then in the eternal, there's the potential that when we stand before Christ for our reward, there may be some lesser reward resulting out of our having lived in this disobedient way for some period of time. I can't tell you what the equation is. I'm just telling you the possibility exists. But in either case, why would you risk it? Here's the fundamental point I want you to walk away with today as we end. We all sin, and we all sin a lot. And though we wanna do less sinning, the reality of it means that we depend on Jesus who erased our debt by his death. And therefore, we gladly accept his forgiveness when we needed it so badly, and likewise, we can certainly afford to show a little mercy to one another now and again, and as Jesus commands us, all the time. None of us owe anyone in here anything other than forgiveness. And it's because we all owe Jesus everything. And he said, forgive one another without limit. And he did it to encourage the unity of the body. He did it because he knew it was the only way we'd actually be able to implement any kind of restoration process. And that's what I think Peter means when he says we are to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in grace means learning how to forgive the way he forgave us. And if you do that, I think you'll have a much greater chance of restoring sheep and keeping the body of Christ strong in faith and obedience. And that's what this whole chapter was about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be softened toward one another. If there is anyone in here, Father, who has at the moment a a heart of unforgiving bitterness towards someone for whatever reason, I pray, Father, that if that person is in the body and has shown repentance, that that would be sufficient for that hardness of heart to disappear, for our forgiveness to be offered freely, and for restoration to be possible. Father, if others have sinned against us and we have Yet to deal with that, I pray, Father, we do it according to the process you've asked and we do it in love. And most of all, Father, I pray that we would never lose sight of how much we've received through Christ's death so that it would become a spring of of a blessing overflowing to everyone around us and we could be that one you want us to be in restoration and love. Help us be a body that reflects that, Father, so that we may serve you well in that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.